welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Demcast Network. I'm Kimberly Johnson, quarantined in D.C. And today I'm so excited because Jared Yates Sexton is back. He is a political analyst, associate professor. Um, he's also host of the Muckrake podcast. And he has a new book coming out on September 15th called American Rule. How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People. So again, that's on 9.15 when that comes out. It's definitely uh, available for pre-order right now. And if you go to his Twitter, you can see it's his pinned tweet. And I have included his handle in the description of this show on Patreon. So we're going to talk all about... a. Th- Okay, how do I say authoritarianism? I can never say that quickly. I said that in the podcast today, too. Um, and fascism. And we're going to talk about um, just a bunch of stuff. Jared is so smart. I love talking to him. And as I said to him on the show, like when, when he's on, I feel like my mind just goes off into five million different directions because he, he you know, he'll say something, you know, he'll, he'll talk for like five or 10 minutes. And as he's talking, all these things come into my mind. And then I just kind of go, bah, and I, I throw it all out at him <laughs> uh, with almost you know, no order or anything to it. It's just that he triggers all these questions and emotions. And so I'm so thankful that he, you know, he's a professor, so he knows his shit and he knows what he's talking about. And I really appreciate his style because I feel like I can be a little bit more loose and all over the map with him because he's able to like listen to me and then bring it all back into a really cool response that's thoughtful and um, shows that he knows his stuff. So I love talking to him. He's just so, I just really like him. So anyway, we're going to get to that in a minute. But I did mention this a little bit on the show with Jared. So I don't know what's going to happen as far as my mom's concerned. So the deal is that, you know, she's got to have a hip replacement and we're in the middle of a global deadly pandemic, which is really not fun. Um, But I know where she's living, even though the cases are going up, they're still not absolutely terrible. And so she's going to have to need this hip replacement. And she, you know, last week, I think it was on Thursday, I was talking to Stephanie on the patrons only show. And I was saying that she got some shots, you know, she got shots for pain in her hip. The doctor figured, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll give you some steroids or whatever it was. I think that's what she got just to keep you through until there's a vaccine or, you know, we can lower the curve, which is a long time off, but the shots last for many months and maybe she could go back and get a couple different shots throughout. But you know what? The shots aren't working. Yesterday, she went to the grocery store and came home and of course had to wash all of her groceries. And she said she felt like she had been crippled that, you know, last night. She had to walk around with a cane. She was in in such pain. So the deal is this. I don't know when this is going to happen, but she has an appointment at the doctor tomorrow and she's going to find out. She probably have to have an MRI and then they're going to maybe schedule something. And then what's going to happen is I'm going to have to go stay with her. And I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen with the podcast during that time. I've already talked to Bob a little bit, but I think what we're going to wind up doing is I will come back to um, our home and record the podcast. That makes me a little bit nervous because I feel like, you know, she's going to be somewhat exposed, although it's pretty safe in a hospital situation because hospitals are, you know, they keep COVID's COVID patients separate and obviously they understand how to keep things clean and everybody's wearing masks and everything but still I worry so I think it's going to be two or three weeks that I'm going to have to stay with her and I think that I'll probably have to come back here and do the shows which you know again it makes me worried because I don't know if I'm going to be exposed to it and then I'm coming back to our home and exposing Bob to it even if it's just for a couple of hours a couple times a week or however it's going to work I don't know how that's going to go 
but I'm just letting you know in advance, I, I plan on still doing shows. I might do a couple of those shows from her place, which means I will just have to do the most basic setup. Maybe that just means working on Skype, not having the music. I might have the music, but it's, I don't know. I mean, not that everybody gives a shit about the music, but I'm just saying it might be slightly different for a couple of those shows just because I got to take care of my mom. I'm very concerned about all of this. She lives in a three-story home. She's going to have to stay on the first story for the entire time. Thankfully, there's a bathroom and everything down there, so she's not going to be without all of that. But it's just, you know, I mean, I learned about this this morning, and I'm a little bit anxious because of obvious reasons. COVID, worrying about your mom, all of it. So just putting it out there and letting you guys know. Okay, aside from that, I did mention on Monday the birds are gone. And so if anybody's interested in seeing pictures, I did on my Kimberly A. Johnson. I think it's Kimberly. It's patreon.com slash Kimberly A. Johnson. K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y. Don't forget that E. I, I, I did a post of the birds. Of course I did. And uh, the story of the birds <laughs> and how they affected me because they really affected me. And then I just included some pictures. So I've been talking about them so much and I, I, I did include pictures. But, you know, I'm just so freaking grateful. I'm so grateful there's no mites outside in my door. You don't even know. But they really did impact me. I mean, they were just, I don't know how to describe it. I wanted them gone, but at the same time, I really felt such a connection to them. And maybe it sounds silly to you guys, but it, w it was a big deal and it was important to me. And now that I know that I'm probably going to go have to stay with my mom, I don't know, like within the next month or two, the whole idea about the kittens, because I want two kittens and I've been able to convince Bob. <laughs> He's just like, yeah, we're getting two kittens now. Because at first he didn't, he wasn't sure. He was like cat politics. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We need to get sisters. And I'm choosing sisters on purpose because my mom has a boy cat and I think he's seven now. And, you know, I know that boy cats have a harder time accepting new cats into a situation. So if there's any time I have to leave my cats with my mom, I think it would just be easier to have two girls. And I say this because my mom had this cat named Sid and she brought home an adult male cat after I think she had a couple of, I think she had three cats or four cats. I don't know, three of them. And one of them died. So she thought, all right, I'm going to bring home uh, this pair. And let me just go back. She had Sid. Sid was the boy. Two girls she had before, you know, with Sid, they both died. So then my mom was going to go get two more cats. So she picked out Sampan. And then she picked out this boy. And um, he was this black boy and he, I don't know, he was like a couple of years old. I don't think he had been fixed. And my mom brought him home and Sid freaked the fuck out. Samantha was black too. She was this cute little black kitten. And then the boy cat was, um, I don't know, maybe a year or two. And Sid freaked out on, on the boy cat. Just, he was screaming and absolutely my mom was in tears, had to bring the boy cat back. She kept Samantha because Sid could tolerate her and eventually they grew to love each other. But the whole, the, the lesson that I learned from that is I am not going to play around with bringing an adult male cat into another home of adult male cat if my mother has to watch our cats at any point. So it's going to be two girl kittens and I can't wait, but I think that's going to be put off because I'm going to have to stay with my mom and I'm totally like controlling. I want... I want to have everything to do with those cats. I want to feed them. I'm going to clean their litter box. It's going to be me. I want the control. <laughs> so, And I want the time because that time is so precious when they're little. So I guess we're just going to have to put this off 
which means Bob gets a break from me bugging him about them because we have to cat proof the house. Miranda was such an easygoing cat that, um, you know, he's going to have to make sure he has all the right things in his office and, um, you know, he's got to get cabinets and then we've got to, we've just got to cat proof. Plus we got to get all the special cat things like cat tunnels <laughs> and, and all the things you play with. And I can't wait. I cannot wait to have two new kitties. I just cannot wait. So anyway, that's enough about me and my animals. Let's just get into it. The Start Me Up podcast is independent and it's supported by you, the listeners. It's also woman run. I don't use corporate backers and I'm not using advertisers. So I'm basically supported by listeners, by Patreon listeners. If you go to patreon.com slash start me up, you can look at the front page of my show. You can see everybody, well, not everybody, but a bunch of people I've interviewed in the very diverse group of people that I've talked to, authors, actors, political pundits, former federal prosecutors. I've had so many cool people on the show and I'm so excited about it. So go ahead and check out that front page. See some of the guests that I've had and then you can take a look at the tiers. And it works this way. I do two free shows a week, Monday and Wednesdays, and then every other week I do one patrons-only show. So that means you get two patrons-only shows per month and it works like this. So I'm doing the situation where for right now, if you sign up for $4 or less you'll get one of those patrons-only shows delivered to your mailbox. You don't even have to search for it. And you get all the free shows delivered to your email box. So uh, that's $4 or less per month. If you go $5 or more per month, then you get both of those shows, both of the patrons-only shows, as well as all the free shows delivered to your email box. That just means you don't have to go looking for it on Twitter. It just goes right to you. You can support the show for any dollar amount. I have several different tiers, but you don't have to go by those tiers. You can choose the dollar amount that you would like to put forth, and any dollar amount is appreciated. But I always suggest maybe if you like the show today and you're new to it, start off at $2, and you know, you'll know you hear one of the, the patrons-only shows, and if you're like, hey, I really want to support this, this show, then you can upgrade later. So that's just an option for you. Again, that's patreon.com slash startmeup. And you can do a one-time donation by checking out the text in the Patreon description of the show. I always include my email and you can do a PayPal thing. And then you can find Start Me Up on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. Now, here I go. Stop by the iTunes slash Apple Podcasts and you, you can become a subscriber because that's free. And that would be awesome. And then you can give me a rating. And I, every day I check my rating. Every day it seems to go up. Almost every day, every day I do a show, it seems to go up. So thank you for those ratings. Reviews are even better. And like I said, becoming a subscriber on um, iTunes, on Apple Podcasts is free. So I would appreciate it. The, the bigger the mouth that I have and the bigger the show gets, there's more opportunity for bad reviews. So anytime you can give, whether it's an author or a podcaster or anybody a good review, please do it. Just please support people who rely on reviews because you don't even know how important it is for us. So any reviews that are positive are always helpful. Okay. That's it for today. That's my intro. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Jared Yates Sexton. Welcome back to the show, Jared. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Although I know the things that we're going to talk about are going to be scary and not fun. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the, that's sort of the nature of our conversations for the most part. But uh, I'm, yeah. I, 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 for one, I'm glad that we have them. No, I, I we absolutely need them. Um but it's, you know, going down your Twitter, th th like the, your feed is just scary because you 
you say the truth and you say things that a lot of people aren't saying. Although I think now, finally, we're starting to see, you know, I mean, I think you had posted, um, I think it was you, I'm not sure, that the Axios video should have happened earlier. No, actually, I think that was Eric Bolhart. Bolhart. Uh, but still, you say um, that the Axios interview with Trump, which is jo- Jonathan Swan and all of his confused, upsetting, like upset faces. <laughs> it's so damning because the interviewer actually engages with what Trump says instead of treating him with the unearned respect because of the office of the presidency or whatever. And and you say our media has failed this moment. And that's exactly right, because I think it was Eric Bullard who said we should have been treating him like this in 2017. And oh, way back in 2015. Yes, I agree. That, I agree. Right, that's the problem. Is like from the very beginning, he was granted this mm-hmm. unearned respect and the ability to say whatever he wanted to say, regardless of its relationship to the truth. So, absolutely, I think this is a uh, not just a long time coming, but way, way past. Time. Yeah, we just don't understand why, uh, especially when it comes to women. You know, I mean, I think back to the way Katie Couric handled Sarah Palin. And, you know, I mean, obviously Sarah Palin was an idiot, is an idiot. And the way that Katie Couric's, you know, what do you read? What specifically do you read? And she, oh, you know, just everything. And, um, I, you know, I, I know that Katie was harder on um, Sarah Palin and before anything ever happened, I mean, just, you know, in the, in the whole process of her uh, leading up to that election, she was harder on Sarah Palin than like almost anybody's been on Trump. And I mean, thankfully, Chris Wallace has, you know, I mean, I think Chris Wallace could have, could have even done a better job, but I think he did a pretty decent job considering everything um, when he interviewed Trump. But yeah, it's just... It's something that's so frustrating and the way that women are treated compared to men, too, is what's frustrating because I know, like, what's her name? Um, oh, I'll think of her name in a minute. But but women who have interviewed Hillary Clinton. Did I say Hillary Trump? <laughs> I don't believe so, but we're, we're there now. <laughs> I, I hope I didn't. Uh, Andrea Mitchell. When Andrea Mitchell was interviewing Clinton, she was extra tough on her. And it seems like they give Trump a pass. And I'm just going to go ahead and say that I think this is patriarchy. I mean, do you agree? No, I do. And and just as a note, I think you're bringing up the Katie Couric interview with Sarah Palin is dead on. And I think it's very instructive to look at how we've arrived at this point. Um, I actually think Katie Couric did... Uh, America a great national service <laughs> yeah. in that interview uh, by simply being a reporter and asking the extra question mm-hmm. because Sarah Palin was certainly a proto-Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, you yes. know, you cannot understand how we got to Donald Trump without understanding Sarah Palin and the, the media environment at the time. Um, we A lot of people have blocked it out now. But yeah. back when Sarah Palin was introduced as John McCain's running mate, which was just an absolute gamble by the, uh, mm-hmm. by the McCain campaign, Everyone just glommed on to the spectacle of yes. Palin, who said nothing, mm-hmm. who had no credentials, no bona fides, had no positions, and just gave a speech in front of a convention that had mm-hmm. absolutely no substance to it whatsoever. And under even the smallest bit of questioning, she crumbled. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it became very evident very quickly that she was not a serious person. Yeah. But what has happened with Trump, I believe, is a combination of not just uh, patriarchal power and quote-unquote respect, 
But it's also part of this mythology that Donald Trump is a successful Mm -hmm. business person. And in America, we have this really corrosive uh, myth of a meritocracy, which says that if you are particularly a white man Mm -hmm. who has money and power, you've obviously earned it. Mm -hmm. And you are obviously talented and you are the type of person who should be in charge of the country. And and unfortunately, um, I was working on my book, American Rule. I actually went back through American history right to the founding. And what I found was from the very beginning, America has operated on that myth. Mm -hmm. And from the very beginning, the founders of this country believed that the greatest repository for democracy and the republic were rich white men. Yeah. Because obviously they had earned their money. They were the most talented and the most trustworthy. So America has always operated under this guise. And and to really sit and question who Trump is, both as a reporter and as a citizen, is to really wrestle with the American mythology. Yeah. You you have to look at him and understand, oh, here is a really untalented, incompetent, unwell white man who has a lot of money and a lot of power. How did he get there? Which makes us start to look at patriarchal capitalistic mm-hmm. systems and realize that they're flawed. And a lot of the stories that we've told ourselves about who we are as a people in a country, they're not just flaws and they're not just untrue they're lies that Mm -hmm. have been weaponized to control us and unfortunately donald trump has gotten the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. not just because of white patriarchal uh, benefits but also from the fact that america particularly the american wealthy and elite need donald trump to appear competent and powerful and and you know it it just crumbles it's just like sarah palin it is so brittle and it just crumbles under just the least little bit of inspection yeah, and then basically Sarah Palin um, goes doesn't go away, but goes away, and then Trump is made president, and it's it's so frustrating because he's just clearly. I mean, we could see what was happening before he was elected, and I remember um, uh, in October when the pussy tape came out, the grabbing the pussy tape, and I, you know, my boyfriend who writes politics and everything was was I was living in California, he was back east, I think for his mom's birthday or something, and. I called him and I was like, Trump is toast. This is it. And uh, <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> it just, it's like, I mean, when he mocked the disabled journalist, when he condemned the, or I don't even remember what he said about that, that gold star family. I can't even remember because it seems like it was, you know, 50 years ago, but it's he, his true colors came out and it didn't matter. It was like the more he was disgusting, the more, airtime they gave him and I mean I'm not saying that like the more America liked him because he really did only win by a small percentage of votes I think it was like 77,000 people but it was that electoral college and of course there was so much playing into it and and I also I'm going to go back to the fact that he was running against Hillary Clinton and even though at that time whether you like her or not she was the most qualified person for that position and um, you know and, and at the time and I've changed my stance on her but I, you know, I mean, I was for her uh, during the election, but I had initially, I was for Bernie. And, you know, I mean, I, I still recognized that uh, she was, you know, extremely qualified and understood what she was doing and would have done a good job, even if it wasn't the perfect job that I would have wanted. But because he was running against her specifically, too, with all of the baggage that, uh, you know, the GOP had thrown at her for all those decades and then with help of the Ru- of Russia and everything. But still, it's like you look at the difference between what's happening now with Joe Biden and what's happening with her. And, you know, I mean, she couldn't do anything anything you know she she was sick 
she had walking pneumonia on 9-11 and they had her at death's door. And, you know, th- nothing sticks to Joe Biden. And not that I wanted to, but I mean, he's a- he's likable. Everybody likes him and he's a man. And even though he's got shit in his past that aren't so, you know, friendly and favorable, no one's sticking to that. No one's really paying attention to that other than the right. Um, but But the media you know, wanted to focus on everything negative about Hillary all the time. And, you know, and it's like, I'm grateful that this time around, we've got a situation where it's not the Democratic nominee that's just, you know, getting it from every end. Um, but still, it's it's so frustrating, just A, as a woman, and B, as an American, and C, as a human, um, just looking at how we treat women and how men get this pass. And, you know, I know that I don't have to say this, but I'm going to say it. Obviously, don't hate men. It's just it's just that, you know, Sherry Jacobus was on here on Monday and we were talking about how more women had to be part of running news, you know, newsrooms and and they have to be part of, you know, whether it's business or the legislature or whatever. There's just got to be more women leaders. It doesn't mean we have to dominate. But right now it's really dominated by. Uh, it's everything is through the lens of white males. And so because of that, we have this situation of Donald Trump gets to do and say whatever he wants. And he has, like you said, unearned credibility. And it's extremely frustrating. And I feel like, you know, a woman is going to deal with so much more. And I don't know when that's going to change. But obviously, Joe Biden is going to be choosing his running mate soon. And she's probably going to be facing it in 2024. And that kind of freaks me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, so to, to, to encapsulate all of that, I feel like one of the things that you touched on before you talked about the current state was that moment back. And it actually took place on my birthday, hmm. October 7th. Oh, wow. Uh, when, <laughs> wow. When, the, when the Access Hollywood thing. Yeah, it was a very weird thing. It it came out, it was on my birthday, and then a hurricane hit Georgia, and the power went <laughs> right. out here. Oh, my God. And, and I was, and I, and I remember when the power went out, I, I, like you, I was like, oh, it's done. Right. That's it. Donald Trump is going to, re- you know, bow out before this whole thing's over. And there's a certain privilege that I think a lot of us had, and going back to that idea of a mythology, there was a certain privilege that a lot of us had that was like, yeah, America screwed up, mm-hmm. but at least it somewhat functions. Right. Right. Because you have somebody like Donald Trump, who's not just disgusting, but is such a visible failure mm-hmm. and just a terrible, terrible human being. We all looked at it, or, or some of us looked at it, those of us who I think were in that mythology or at least clinging to it. And we were like, oh, the system will reject. It. Right. There's just no way. And, and like you said, we, yes, Hillary Clinton is a woman and she's obviously more qualified than Trump. Obviously, the electorate will see past any yeah. sort of uh, misogynistic patriarchal concepts and will at least realize that this person is dangerous and move forward. But what we end up finding out, of course, and, and this is this is unfortunate because this has been on both the left and the right, mm-hmm. Democrat and Republican, that mythology that time is somehow or another bending towards justice, Mm -hmm. that each year that passes, we become fairer and freer and more equal. Mm -hmm. And and, and the truth is that that progress is a myth all of its own, right? Like you were saying, like, if... (laughs) If America is actually progressing, we would have realized that Donald Trump was dangerous and mm-hmm. totally would have went for the candidate who was obviously better. Mm-hmm. But but that's not how it works. This system has been broken for a very long time, and we all operate under, my God, so many illusions. Mm-hmm. You know, so many so many misconceptions about how things are supposed to work. And one of the things that is actually happening now, which is uh, both tragic and unfortunate, but also we're lucky that it is, 
in the middle of this pandemic, it's becoming clearer and clearer. And I actually think this Axios interview is a little bit of a moment mm -hmm. that we need to remember. Um, the pandemic has exposed all yeah. of the frauds of America. Yes. It, it has become very clear because the mythology we're talking about is American exceptionalism, mm -hmm. right? right? The idea yeah. that Amer America is the best nation. We do everything right. We are the champion of the world and of the universe. Well, if that's true, how are we failing the way we are? And what we're starting mm -hmm. to learn is that there was a veneer that hid everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, meanwhile, our healthcare system sucked. Our educational system sucked. We rejected science and experts, and we, you know, we, we don't really care about life. We, mm -hmm. We're throwing school children and workers into the mall of this mm -hmm. pandemic. And so what we're starting to see in, in the 2020 campaign, I think, is unique, not just because, obviously, we don't have a campaign trail, but because I think that the media, like you said, they're not going to sit here and beat up on a candidate and try and pretend that this is a horse race. Yeah. Because that's part of that mythology, right? That we're going to find the best candidate and the best candidate will win after a hard fought campaign. Right. Well, that's not true. No. And it's never actually been true. Like occasionally the most qualified candidate will win, mm -hmm. but we can't sit here and pretend that we're not racist and sexist mm -hmm. and prejudiced and xenophobic and, and that there aren't fascistic elements mm -hmm. in this country that people like Donald Trump can both tap into and inspire and empower. So I, I think we're looking at a realignment, but the question mm -hmm. is, first of all, we've lost hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Uh, God knows how many Americans are going mm -hmm. to have permanent damage mm -hmm. from the coronavirus. Um, are our institutions actually going to be revised and changed for the better, or are we just going to you know, hold our nose and plunge yeah. deep into this fascistic abyss? And I, I, I have to tell you, is like in the same boat as you were, looking back in October of 2016, I can't tell you certain, for a certainty which one we're going to do because I had to disabuse myself of the notion that we are, for whatever reason, progressing towards justice. Yeah. Right does not always win out. Um, the most qualified candidate does not always win out. Mm -hmm. And the best thing does not always happen. Mm -hmm. So I, I think this is one of the things I really want people to understand is we have to stop hiding behind precedents and laws mm -hmm. and norms and institutions because those things are only as strong as our ability and our willingness to fight for them. Yeah. And and we have to realize that this is a really tenuous moment in our history and it can get a whole lot worse, a whole lot faster, yeah. really, really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've said so many times and I will keep saying it that because I had the experience of living in Soviet Russia, I understand how a whole nation, I mean, it's one thing to see something on the news. You know, we can look at North Korea and we can, and as Americans who have, you know, any American who has never been to North Korea or ever been in any kind of a authoritarian, communist, fascist country, it just, it's something so foreign, but when you actually have the opportunity to walk around in it and live in it, and you can see how um, easily people have been controlled and how fear keeps them from speaking out. I mean, as a 12-year-old girl living in Russia, Soviet Russia, I, I, I think back to some of my behaviors and some of my attitudes, and I kind of cringe because while I recognize what was, I, I knew what was happening. It was explained to me by my teachers and my father and all that. But there was this, there was this privilege that I had that kind of blinded me. And also the, you know, the 12 year old, um, hubris, I guess, <laughs> you think, you think, you know, everything. And, and I had gone over to this country where, you know, I remember when, 
when it was first posed to me that, you know, my father had married uh, my stepmother and I was afraid to go just because I was first of all afraid to deal with living with my stepmom. I had known her since I was six, but I had never lived with her. So I think like that kind of freaked me out. But more than that, when, when it was posed to live in Russia, I remember in my mind, I had this visualization, like this visual of Russia. I can still see it in my mind. And I just, it, it freaked me out. I, it was nothing like what it was like over there. But it was just my thought of what it might be like. And it was kind of dark and dank, which actually it is, um, spe- specifically during the wintertime. But I was so afraid to go. My mom was just like, you are going. I, you are going. <laughs> you are having that experience. And and so, um, you know, I mean, I, I went over there and... I felt like I was so lucky and I felt so privileged and I thought, oh my God, you know, I really get it. I really get that America is the greatest country in the world because Russia is so awful. And, um, but the thing is, is what I saw is people, you know, were frightened and they kept their heads down when they walked down the street. It wasn't like, um, walking down the street in America. I mean, you can walk down the street in New York and people will bump into you and scream, fuck you. But I mean, the idea is in Russia, it's like everybody just kept their head down and kept to themselves. And it wasn't friendly and it wasn't, um, I don't know, it just felt different. And so I don't think people here fully grasp, even liberals who understand what's going on. I, I mean, and I don't think we're going to turn into the Soviet Union, so that's not what I'm saying. But it's just the idea that how quickly... Uh, an entire nation can be controlled and learn to fear their government that if they were to speak out, they're going to wind up, you know, in jail or disappeared. And I realized that as quickly as we found out that Putin was playing around with our elections and attacking us, um, that was immediate. I, I immediately understood that it wouldn't take very long at all. And, you know, and then we've got these people screaming Russiagate and acting like it's not true or not important. And even though Russia isn't the only problem that we have, it's definitely a big one. And, you know, considering that Donald Trump is, you know, compromised, God only knows how far those tentacles go. Um, you know, you can only guess. I don't think Putin is running our country or anything like that, but I do think he's got a big say. And it's not just him. It's the people who are working for him, like, you know, those Paul Manaforts and Roger Stones. And they're, you know, dispersed throughout, you know, our government and, and they're they're helping Trump and they're advising Trump. And I feel like I think it's farther than we're giving them credit for. But in the end, my my biggest fear is that people are going to not necessarily understand what's at stake. And they think, you know, I mean, I consider myself progressive, um, but I see people who call themselves progressive who feel like if Biden loses, they'll have another shot in 2024. And it's like, we're not. We're not going to have another shot. We don't, that's done. American democracy will be done. So this kind of brings me to your, your tweet about, um, you know, you say those of us who are warning about Trump's authoritarian nature aren't alarmists. He telegraphs literally everything he wants, uh, everything he will do. So I kind of want you just to go off on that a little bit, because um, I, I, I know that people, un- I mean, of course, people who listen to my show, I believe they understand it just because of the responses that I get. But just in general, I mean, 
I don't think people really fully grasp this. I, I, I know you do, so I, just, I want you to talk about it. And you said Trump is a destroyer, and that's what he is. Yeah, and, and I want to start with, and, and actually, I, I think the Soviet Union is a good place to start. Because when we think about authoritarianism or fascism, uh, and, and I'm speaking about a lot of Americans who now believe, of course, that it can happen here, they're thinking about like iron-fisted yeah. dictators, right? They're thinking about a Hitler or mm-hmm. a Mussolini. Mm-hmm. We're talking about them like crushing dissenters with like a smile on their face, mm-hmm. right? That idea is of the past. Yeah. Like we're not we're not going to plunge into a Soviet Union no. style situation. What we're veering towards is Putinism. Yes. And and what people need to understand about Putin is that Putin operates based on uh, what are open systems of power and closed systems of power. Russia on its face presents itself mm-hmm. as a democracy. Yeah. That that there are freedoms of speech and assembly and you're able to be in a adversarial political party you're able to go where you want and do what you want but the whole point of of putinism is that underneath the surface is dictatorial power yeah um and and what what putin does particularly and his propagandists do is they tinker around with reality and so they'll create you know they'll create spectacles they'll create movements that they control They'll make these fake moments of, of crisis where Putin is the uh, the hero of the moment. Mm-hmm. And all the while, they will crack down on dissenters. You know, they will disappear people, which, you mm-hmm. know, is, a, you know, the way to say that they'll murder and kill their right. opponents. And and what ends up happening is that people inside of Putinist Russia, and this goes back, actually, they learned this from the Soviet Union. The reason why everyone walks around with their head down is because their spirits have been crushed. Yes. They understand that they do not have power and it doesn't matter what they do because there's something above them that keeps them from being able to act upon their freedoms. They're told that they're free, but there's no actual mm-hmm. freedom to, to be behind this. So the, the, this idea is like a really postmodern insidious thing that Vladimir Putin is trying to export around the world. This is a major movement right mm-hmm. now. It's yeah. all throughout Europe. Um, we're, we're watching far right groups that are totally aligned with Putin ideologically, but also logistically. Mm-hmm. And here in America, and, and here's the thing. I always tell people this. When people think about Trump's relationship with Putin, the first thing that they always come to is either something like, you know, the, the piss tape mm-hmm. or whether or not he has a piece of compromise on Trump, whatever. We can if, if we want to have a conversation and we don't have to talk about conspiracies, let's just go ahead and throw that, that out the window and talk about this. They are ideologically aligned. Yeah, they they believe. And, and, and I keep trying to explain this to people. It's about post politics. Mm-hmm. When you get to a certain level of wealth and power and this is Trump, this is Putin. This is also big tech. Mm-hmm. This is also, you know, multi-billionaires like an Elon Musk or Bezos or whatever or mm-hmm. a Zuckerberg. Once you get to a certain level, you don't actually have like a solid ideology. The only mm-hmm. thing that matters is that you continue to profit. Yeah. Right. You continue to make sure that you are richer than the next person. and You have more power when they look at politics like you and I are sitting here talking about the 2020 election. Right. We're talking about people going into polls and voting on who they want to be president. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump doesn't care about an election. Vladimir Putin doesn't care about an election. That's a hurdle. Yeah. to get past, right. right? 
like in the past, politicians tried to convince you to vote for them because they were going to give you something or they were going to lead us in that direction. Now it's just about, my God, we have to get past this election. Mm-hmm. That's it. And, and once we get past democracy, these people will be able to profit and engage in corruption on a massive scale yeah. without any sort of feedback. So the problem here in America, it you know, and right now, of course, we have federal troops that are disappearing people off the streets while they're pretending that it's not fascistic mm-hmm. and that it's not an authoritarian maneuver. But the way that this country could go into the authoritarian abyss is like Putinist Russia has gone into the authoritarian abyss. We have all of our freedoms that everyone can claim that we have, but everyone's afraid to use them. And none of them mm-hmm. actually exist. And, you know, when Trump sits there and he tells you, oh, maybe I'll run for a third term or maybe I'll be there for decades or maybe I'll delay the election. He's not playing around. Yeah. Like these are the things that if he's allowed to do, he will do. That doesn't mean that it's inevitable. Right. Everyone keeps saying. And, you know, I I have some colleagues who are like, well, he couldn't delay the election. He doesn't have the power. Well, power is a social construct. Mm-hmm. Elections are social constructs. Authoritarians really do not care about laws and mm-hmm. precedents and constitutions. If you allow that, and by the way, we've seen that with Trump. I mean, he has violated his oath of office God knows how many times at this point. And every time that he does it, he does it because he's allowed to do it, right? And authoritarians uh, who are inherently like this, like Donald Trump or Putin, they will take everything that you give them. Mm-hmm. And all weakness that you show them in terms of institutions and norms, they will destroy them. Mm-hmm. And so this is just who he is and what happens naturally. So we don't even have to talk about conspiracy theories or smoke-filled rooms. Ideologically, these people are opposed to liberal democracy. Yeah. They don't think that you or I deserve a say in how things happen or how businesses are run or how profit is divvied up. They think that they are the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. And as a result, democracy is something to get past. Yeah. I mean, wow, that's exactly what it is. And it's true. It's like it doesn't matter. I mean, I do think that he has a lot um, on Trump and he can, you know, push. I mean, I know they I know Russians were were watching him for a long time and then they were the ones who were giving him money when no one else was. And I know Paul Manafort and Roger Stone. I know Stone wanted him to be president for a while and pushed him toward that. So they were, you know, Putin has that extra advantage, I think, by having um, information on him. But outside of that, yeah, absolutely. They are looking at it through the lens of, yeah, like it's a business and I don't give a shit about, I just don't give a shit about elections. And clearly he doesn't. So now I want to talk to you about this delay thing because Terry Canefield was on a couple weeks ago. She's a lawyer. She does a lot of threads on this. Her whole thing is first is like what you said. Uh, he can't do it because it's in the constitution. Um, and then she doesn't want people to panic, which I will agree. I don't think anyone should panic because that's not going to do anything. You know, we're panicking. is not going to help. But um, I feel like, you know, definitely there is concern there. And I understand that it it's it's would be difficult for him because each, you know, the, the elections are, are run by the state. But I mean, what if he declares martial law? What if he you know, what could he do? Um what could he do? I mean, I know Lawrence O'Donnell had said something like, you know, there's just no way we're going to have this election on November 3rd. We had elections during the Civil War, and it's just, we're going to have it. Um, but it's like, I'm on, the, I'm feeling like we can't assume the norms and even the laws are going to hold for everything you just said. Um, 
what, I, I would, what what could happen? What could he do? Well, so I'll, I'll start off by saying this. Um, I like Terry Canefield a lot. I respect Terry Canefield. Um, we have several inherent disagreements about the stability of law and democracy in the United States of America. I understand where Terry is coming from because, mm-hmm. I mean, she has devoted her life to the law. Mm-hmm. And if you do not believe that the law is something that, you know, is very, very strong and something to be followed and has inherent meaning, I'm not sure how you could work within law. Yeah. But I come from a standpoint where I look at this, and again, we have to understand that laws and precedents and constitutions are not immutable. Mm-hmm. They're not they're not forces of nature. Mm-hmm. They don't exist just organically, right? <laughs> Everything that we're doing in terms of politics is imaginary. It's a total social construct mm-hmm. that we got together and we agreed upon. And the only reason that liberal democracy has ever worked is because we've always thought that people operated in good faith. Mm-hmm. But, but the problem is when people of bad faith violate those social constructs and there's no consequence. Mm-hmm. And yes, so when you right. have somebody like yeah. Trump who doesn't care about rules and actually just a, a quick aside, Trump's background in corporate profit and, and, and just this corporate mindset uh, plays into this because you, you know this. It's like all of these people who are in corporations, they understand that the law is a blurry thing mm-hmm. and that yeah. they can trouble the law, yeah. right? That's that's how you get ahead is you are more willing to take chances with the law than your competitors. Right. And yeah, occasionally like the SEC or a federal governance body will come in and say, you broke the law, you are now, you know, here's X number of dollars you now owe, here's the, the consequence. Those things have gone away particularly mm-hmm. post-Reagan, post-George mm-hmm. W. Bush, those um, those referees are gone. Yeah. And so what you've seen in America, and, and actually they, it's led to corporations growing international in scope and actually outgrowing countries. So they don't care about countries. Mm-hmm. This is one of the reason, reasons why the biggest American companies are not paying taxes for schools and roads and defense and healthcare and infrastructure. They don't even actually consider themselves American anymore. Mm-hmm. They are their own Global. country, yeah, right? right? So when you have somebody like Donald Trump, who is not only um, somebody who thrives on troubling the law, but has often flaunted Mm -hmm. his violations of the law, he doesn't care. And he understands now, particularly being president for the the past four years, that the the founders, by the way, the founders put all of these precautions in place Mm -hmm. for the presidency. They put them in place believing that we would not have factionalism. Hmm. They they did not think that we were going to have parties. They didn't think that we would get into a position where the people who should hold the presidency accountable would end up being in the same party as the president. Hmm. They thought there would be a natural uh, antagonism between the executive branch and the legislative branch. Mm-hmm. They never could have imagined a Republican party that knew that their president broke the law right. and yet yeah. refused to hold them accountable. Um, so what ends up happening is over years and years and years of troubling the law, the law becomes brittle. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and here's yeah. the thing. People say this all the time. They're like, well, if, if Donald Trump says he's going to delay the election, only the legislatures can do that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what ends up happening? Violence makes things a little mutable, hmm. right? All of a sudden, chaos makes mm-hmm. things a little mutable. Mm-hmm. We have, I mean, how many how many emergencies do we have right, right now? Yeah. A, a, like a, a, a half dozen, a handful of emergencies that at any moment these things could happen. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I keep trying to tell people about this. I'm not sure if you saw it, but this is something that your listeners should definitely look into. 
a couple of months ago, a bipartisan group got together and we're talking about people who um, are not considered alarmist, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. We're talking about like members of government. We're talking about military people. We're talking about straightforward shortcut people. And they got together to war game uh, the the 2020 election. And, and what they found was that there was almost no scenario where Donald Trump would accept a loss because yes. that is intuitively who he is, Yes. right? And I, I want to remind your listeners of something. When he lost the popular vote in 2016, it was something by about 3 million votes. Yeah. He immediately, with no proof whatsoever, started telling everyone that 3 million illegal votes came out of California. Right. yeah. There was no proof of this. He made it up. Yeah. So for Donald Trump and his delusional worldview... If he loses an election, it was not a fair election. Right. Right. So there, there is no way whatsoever that he will accept a defeat. It just it no. would crush him. It would destroy him as a human being, and it would erode and, and just mm-hmm. absolutely collapse his idea of how the universe works. So he's going to fight and scramble. The question is how the institutions react. Now, I, I, I'm one of those people who warn about this all the time, so I'll give you a little bit of hope. I was really, really made to feel better during the Black Lives Matter protest where Trump wanted to get U.S. forces in the streets and basically kill Americans. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things that ended up happening was the leaders of the of the armed forces sent out memorandums to our memoranda. I'm not sure what the plural is there. Memos to members of the armed services that saying you have sworn an oath to the Constitution. And you need to remember that, right? Mm-hmm. So that 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 made me feel better, the yeah. idea that people in higher places of authority would do that. But we also need to remember a couple of things which are not as um, – they, they don't give you as much confidence, which is that our law enforcement and our armed services have been infiltrated mm-hmm. by white supremacists. Mm-hmm. Many of them are extremists. Many of them are terroristic. They've already shown that they're more than willing to meet out violence against Americans that they don't agree with. And many of them are Trump cultists. Mm -hmm. So I I have to tell you that I truly believe leading up to the election Mm -hmm. and immediately following the election, we're going to see violence. Mm -hmm. We're going to see disarray. We're going to see chaos. It's going to be a stress test Mm -hmm. for American democracy. And I think that people... Unfortunately, I think people who believe that precedent laws and constitutions that they'll just simply hold up because they're there, I I, I think that that's a dangerous notion. We have to understand that we're going to be tested and that we Mm -hmm. have to meet that test. Because if we don't, like you said, there's no coming back. That's the end. Well, yeah. And I mean, this kind of goes back to the agreement I have with Terry. Uh, We can't be panicked. But we have to understand, and like you said, there's going to be a stress test, so we have to be prepared for it. I don't even know how you can prepare for something like that other than to just expect that this is coming. And we don't know exactly how it's going to play out or what form it's going to take, but it's going to take – something is going to happen. Because it seems to me that um, – you know, I think Trump is probably aware of the fact, and I'm not exactly sure everything that motivates him, but – you know, he's got he's got all these lawsuits and, and people in, doing criminal investigations. And he's got to realize that even if he were to say, all right, I'm going to step aside and let Trump, uh, I'm sorry, Pence pardon me. He's still got state charges that could come up that he can't get away from. And so 
I don't know outside of something like that. I don't know, you know, other than just wanting to hold on to that power of, of the presidency, um, what is exactly motivating him. But whatever it is, he does not want to give it up. He just does not. And so he's going to do everything he can possibly do. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, do you think that he's going to um, declare martial law when it comes time to vote? I mean, because here's here's what I could see him doing. You know, he's he tells everybody he's telling all the kids to go back to school. But then as soon as we hit, you know, time to vote, he's going to say, oh, well, we can't go out because it's too dangerous. I mean, I could see him doing something like that. There's a lot happening here. And, and the first thing I will say is that um, I, I, I think people need to understand how bizarre, tragic and Shakespearean of a character Donald Trump is. <laughs> Um, he has all the wealth that a person could ever want, and he's miserable. Mm -hmm. He is the president of the United States, which is what he supposedly wanted. He hates the job. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if he could get out of being president without suffering the yes. humiliation of losing an election and without facing prosecution, mm -hmm. I think he would do it. Yeah, I do I, too. I, I actually think that what Donald Trump wants is the ex-president lifestyle, which is <laughs> wow, yeah. going into country clubs right. and people calling him Mr. President yeah. and having none of the responsibility or the work. Yes. But he doesn't want the job. The American people don't want him to have the job. And yet we're here because right. his personal worldview of who he is and his place in the universe is that he is the best person for this job and he should never lose and any humiliation would destroy him. So we need to suffer through this situation with him, and that's where we're going. Mm -hmm. do, I, do I think that he will declare martial law? I do not know. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you this. Donald Trump is a gambler. Mm -hmm. And if you look back over his career, both as a business person and as a politician so far, and by the way, people like to pretend, and this goes back to that mythology of America that we were talking about, mm -hmm. people like to project on him some sort of genius or competency. Yeah. They want to pretend like everything he does is for a reason because it's it's much more frightening to admit there's a madman behind the right, wheel. Right, yeah. Um, he's not playing four-dimensional chess. He's no. choking on checkers is what's <laughs> yeah. happening. And so what ends up happening, and if you look at his career both as a business person and as a politician, he just tries things. He reacts, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, if, if, you know, think about it like a, a Breaking Bad or something, like every time that like a Walter White gets into like this emergency situation, he has to figure a way out. Right. Right. It's not a big plan. It's desperation. Yeah. It's the fox gnawing off the paw to get out of a trap. And so Trump tries everything mm -hmm. and there is no logic to the madness. So what will end up happening the closer that he gets to an election? We've already seen uh, in late July. He looked at a poll that looked bad and said, well, maybe we should delay the election. Mm -hmm. So the more right, and more yeah. he sees these polls, and by the way, the reopening of the schools, I think he's doing that because he thinks if he can get people back to work, maybe the economy will jumpstart. Mm -hmm. But there's no future vision mm -hmm. of how to make people safe or how to continue that quote-unquote economic yeah. bump. This is all throwing stuff at the wall and hoping that some, something sticks because he is desperately outmatched for this job. Yeah. He should not be in it. He has no idea what he's doing. And everything is desperation, which is the frightening thing mm -hmm. because authoritarians are inherently uh, insecure and incompetent. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening is they continually try things and they try and find weaknesses in the system. And when the system weakness is revealed, 
they surge on it mm-hmm. and they, they use it. And so do I think he could? Absolutely he could. And any of these crises, I think, could be a reason for him to somehow or another consolidate power and or trouble democratic institutions. I think we should be ready for that. Wow. It's just, it's all so frightening. I mean, I'm, you know, in the midst of all of this, um, just on a personal note, my poor mom, she's 73 years old and she's got to have hip replacement. And she, she got some shots recently, you know, hopefully to take the pain away, but it just didn't work. So she just told me this morning, she's got this appointment tomorrow with her doctor and they're probably going to have to do an MRI at some point. And then what's going to wind up happening is I'm going to have to go stay with her while she heals. And, you know, I mean, so I, I look at what's happening. Each one of us has our own personal story, uh, you know, I mean, as to why dealing with this administration in and, and COVID at the same time is is so much. I mean, it is a huge stress test. And it's like I'm looking at my own personal thing where, OK, I'm going to have to uh, go. You know, I'm going to have to jeopardize my health and my boyfriend's health because I'm going to have to come back here and do my podcasts. And, and, you know, and it's like, I look at all this and I feel like, oh my God, how are we going to get through this? You know, I mean, how are we as a people? Because like one of the things that you were saying, it's so true. Like when I noticed, at least you said something that triggered a thought for me, which was that, you know, you can turn on social media or have a conversation with someone who maybe isn't um, as in depth as you are about politics and authoritarianism, I, I can never say that word quickly. So you know what I mean, um, and fascism and all that stuff. Uh, you understand it very clearly. You've written a book, and you know y- you spend your life doing this. But the average American is watching a certain amount of news, reading a certain amount of social media, and that's all they get. And so they very, um, you know, easily dismiss terrible things that could happen. And, oh, that's not going to happen. Oh, this is going to do this. Like you said, it's like uh, everybody thinks that the, the norms are just going to protect us and that the Constitution and what was written in the Constitution is going to protect us. But the thing is, is like, you know, and you were saying, too, that Trump is doing everything out of desperation, but he has the benefit of people like Bill Barr who understand who are not stupid. <laughs> and, I mean, I don't know that I would call Trump stupid. He's, he's not. He is. Like, he's ignorant. He's ignorant. He's not curious. He's um, he he doesn't care about anything but himself. So, but like Bill Barr understands the law, and he he he's a smart man. Whereas Trump is just like this big monster stomping all over everything. Bill Barr is like the brain or whoever ha- whoever else he's got in his so- you know in his court, helping him out, helping him figure out all of these nefarious deals about how we're gonna like you know delay the election or something like that. That really scares me. But I feel like how, I don't, I mean, I don't even know if you have the answer. I'm just kind of throwing this out there. Like, how do we deal with this? How how can we as a people um, handle what's going to be happening in the next couple of months? Because it's all going to be so erratic and, and frightening. And then on top of it, we've got people dying. And on top of it, it's like, he's just telling us we're on our own and it's going to get worse. And he, and just as, as a person trying to live their life. I'm worried about my mom. I don't want her to get COVID if she has to get a hip operation. And it's just, it goes down to these little tiny things that are in your life that are, you know, not having anything to do with the bigger picture, but it's all of us because it is the bigger picture. We all got our own little stories. You know, we have our well, own little dramas. And then this. Well, I'm, so, I'm so glad that you approached it in that way, because I actually think that's the antidote to what has hmm. happened. So going back to that mythology of America that we were talking about at the beginning of, of our talk, This idea that 
America is somehow or another just always progressing, right? It's just this thing that every year yes. it gets better and it just automatically goes in this direction. It's meant to make you think that you have no control over it. Mm -hmm. It's meant to make politics and society feel like a spectacle to watch on TV. And by the way, that's exactly what social media is for, right? We're live watching a television show and we're reacting to it. Mm -hmm. It it is, you know, and you can occasionally organize through social media, but it is inherently a capitalistic project that is about reacting to things as opposed to being proactive. Mm -hmm. So what you just said is really important, which is if you look at it from a top down process, like you and I are just citizens of a country. Donald Trump is a president. We couldn't get a hold of him if we had to. There's nothing we can do. That person is there. Right. Mm-hmm. But if we actually start looking at it from a grassroots perspective and I keep telling people three things. One, we have to take this time to get educated mm-hmm. because everything that we've been told so far about American history and politics is, isn't just a lie. It's a weaponized lie. Hmm. It was all created and sold to us in order to make us feel like there was nothing that we could ever do. Mm-hmm. The second thing is we need to get pissed off mm-hmm. because he, here's the honest to God truth. And, and you know, it, it's somebody like your mom or my mom or the people that I love. The people in my life, I come from a poor family. I come from a working class family in rural Indiana. Um, People in my life have lived shorter, more miserable lives Mm -hmm. unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I I lost out on years with them. I lost my father. He was 58 Mm -hmm. years old. And, you know, you lose out on all of these opportunities, not just with the people you love, but also, I mean, we're facing an economic crisis right now that was preventable. Um, I, you know, I graduated from graduate school in 2008 as the housing market was, you know, melting down. So I, my opportunities and the people I love, their opportunities have been screwed over. And right now there is a massive project helmed by somebody like Donald Trump and Bill Barr and Pompeo Mm -hmm. and and, and the entire Republican Party which is all about that post-political project that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. The idea that we need to get past the will of the people because mm-hmm. they don't know what they're doing and we should leave it to the powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, then finally, we need to get organized. We need to remember that all power and sovereignty actually comes from the people and not from the leaders, mm-hmm. which is something that Americans have forgotten. And, it, and particularly in a post-Reagan America, we've forgotten the idea that through solidarity and organization, we can actually affect change, which mm-hmm. I actually think it's one of the great things about the Black Lives Matter protest movement yes. is it reminded us, oh, yeah, if we come together under one umbrella and one voice, have to pay attention. Yeah. They, they have no choice but to. And when you actually take a look at American history, and I didn't understand this until I wrote American Rule, it's a pendulum of power. There are moments in American history where it feels like the people have no power whatsoever and the wealthy and the powerful just consolidate all of their power and, you know, it it, it feels hopeless. And then the pendulum swings when Americans remember that through solidarity and organization, we have power. Mm -hmm. And these massive, massive changes happen. All of the things that we can now talk about is great parts of America, everything from – you know, workers' rights to women's suffrage to civil liberties and civil rights. All of that was one when Americans remembered that through solidarity and organization, yeah. they could they could move mountains. Yeah. So again, I we we have to take this time to learn the facts, learn actual history, and learn actual politics. We need to get angry about it, and we need to find each other because it's it like you yes. said. It's the individual experiences when they come together yeah. that actually create something larger than looking at the larger picture and feeling like we're removed right, from it. Right, yeah. 
Well, I mean, and I can imagine that there's so many parents in this country right now who are just oh. freaking out. And, you know, I spoke with Travis Akers last week and he had such an in- he had tweeted out the fact that, you know, he has an ex-wife and they have a teenager and the ex-wife is basically a, a MAGA and he isn't. And so, you know, this whole idea is their teenager is about to go to school and the mom is and, and because of he lives in Florida and because of the way, even though they have 50 50 custody, the child lives with his mother and, be, you know, the primary resident parent is the one who gets to make those kinds of decisions. So, you know, this kid is at risk of having to go back to school, although he told me Travis Akers told me that his son had just witnessed somebody from his um, baseball team you know, a school and, and pardon me for not knowing the I'm not a sports person, but, but it's like, you know, whatever kind of sports team he was a baseball team, somebody got COVID that, you know, in his class or, or in his, in his league. Um, and then, you know, he's seeing it in the big leagues too, where legit, you know, like the, uh, the famous baseball players are getting sick or for or sports people. So, um, and I really sound so ignorant about sports, but, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, but you know, hopefully that his son is recognizing, oh, wait a minute, this is kind of real. He's starting to wake up from this, but that doesn't take away from the fact that you've got all these, you know, parents out there. And so what I, you know, I got sidetracked, but the idea is we've got all these parents that are going to be pissed because what are they going to, they, they, they either are going to send their kids to school and poss- those those kids will either get sick and bring it home and they'll die or their kids could die. I mean, there's so many horrible situations. And I think that that hopefully will, you know, that combined with a, a lot of other things that are just making everybody angry. But here's the other thing. And I'm just, I'm my mind is going a mile a minute. And, and it's like, it just popped into my head that if Congress doesn't do anything about um, people being able to stay in their homes, we're going to have this massive homeless population. Yes. And that is going to, I don't I can't even begin to think about how horrible that will be. And, you know, I mean, I hope that, I hope that we figure this out and it's, you know, the Republicans are pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And I don't know what they're going to do. I don't trust them. I just don't trust them. I don't understand why I don't get their logic. If they think that, if they think, Oh, those people will be homeless and they won't be able to, I, I don't know what they're thinking. Why, you know, it's, it's like they can't win and they know this based on like a popular vote type thing. So they have to figure that what they're instead of changing their message, instead of even lying, you know, changing their message and lying, they're just like, let's, let's try to make it impossible for people to vote. And so, you know, I don't even know. It's like the idea that we're going to have a whole bunch of pissed off people. I hope that that makes it. I, I think we can look at past elections and say, you know, ever since Trump came in, I think that we can say, you know, Democrats have pretty much won all of those elections by a decent or a very big margin. We've seen more diversity. I do certainly hope that that's what we're going to experience, even though it may not be the uh, kind of election we're expecting. It might take a little longer to come to those conclusions because if it is vote by mail and he's trying to he's trying to kill the post office, I mean, it's like, oh, my God, everything is my my mind gets split. I feel like I don't even know what, but all I can say is I am angry and I'm going to vote. And, you know, and I, and, and, and that's, you know, outside of that, I'll be making calls for whether it's, you know, certain um, people running in, in for Senate or House. I'll be making calls on, on behalf of Joe Biden. And Joe Biden was certainly not my first pick, but hell, I mean, 
I, I would I'm happy to vote for him, you know, at this point. I'm, I'm like I think he's a good man. I don't think he's perfect, but I think that he can um make improvements, which comes to my last question. I know I just threw a lot out at you and if you want to address those, that's fine, but I do want to <laughs> get to um and I'm just kind of thinking out loud because it's like when I talk to you, you're so smart and you 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 are able to um, talk about these things in, in such a calm, measured way. And then what winds up happening is my mind just starts exploding with this and that and this and that. And this. <laughs> it's like, so I just had that like out loud. Um, but I'm just wondering what you think. Let's just say Joe Biden wins and we've got this Biden administration. What do you think are the most important things to focus on to prevent another situation like Trump? Well, I'll, I'll start here real fast. Um, I, I think what you brought up about the Republican Party is a really important thing that we have to touch on, which is that, uh, and, and again, I, found, I, I didn't understand this until I was doing the, the research on the book American Rule, and I figured out that what has happened is the Republican Party is engaged in this game theory strategy, which actually doesn't have anything to do with ideology. Mm-hmm. And we need to understand they're not actually conservative. No, they're not. They're, 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 those things, like all of these talking points that you know have been churning up for years and years, the idea that they're pro-life or pro-troops mm-hmm. or small government or mm-hmm. fiscally or socially conservative, um, it's all BS. Mm-hmm. They don't actually believe in any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it has turned into a movement that has only one concern, which is consolidating power. Yeah. And when you have a party that particularly starts embracing things like white identity and white supremacy, and that's how they get their votes – you know, when you live in a, a moment of, of cultural uh, revolution, this idea that, you know, people of color are suddenly having more of a voice and they're suddenly being involved in the national conversation more, what ends up happening is you realize that you can't win democratic elections anymore. Mm-hmm. You can't win the majority of the people. Yeah. So what, what do you do? You rely on things like the Electoral College, right. which was invented to help slaveholding states. Mm-hmm. You start gerrymandering. You start disenfranchising voters. And as a last resort, these fascistic movements start destroying democratic institutions, Mm -hmm. right? So first of all, the Republican Party needs to go away. That doesn't mean that we can't have a new conservative party. We can have an argument about conservatism versus liberalism and progressivism. Those are things that need to happen. And to go along with what you were saying about Biden, I I think this is something people need to, to realize. We are teetering on the brink of a disaster. Yeah. We actually are. And, and, and we can look at it one of two ways. When you're teetering on a brink of disaster and there is a huge amount of human suffering and crisis, that is both an opportunity for change and an opportunity for things to get much worse. Yeah. So, so one of the things that happens is, as you were saying, as people are being evicted, as people are losing their jobs, as children are going to be getting sick. It's going to become more and more clear over the next few months that Donald Trump is not only incompetent but dangerous. Yeah. And so you're going to see strange bedfellows. <laughs> I actually I actually think one of the things to keep an eye on is what the teachers of America do. And, you know, I personally am a college professor, but I can tell you that teachers across America are not necessarily ideologically aligned. Mm-hmm. We're not all liberals a lot of public school teachers are conservative in nature Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it might come to a point where you have a solidarity through a labor arrangement right all of a sudden you have teachers who come out opposed to an administration and suddenly that spell that we talked about that mythology starts to break when you realize that not only is donald trump incompetent and broken the american system of government has been broken for a long time yeah 
right? But the other side of this measure, so when we talk about crisis and suffering as a point of either things getting worse or things getting better, we have to be very careful if Joe Biden wins the wins the presidency. Yeah. Because just because somebody who is somewhat competent or, you know, a universe different from Trump mm-hmm. does not mean that all of our problems go right, away. Right, of course. It just means they're easier to ignore. And the problems that led to Donald Trump, and I say this to every time I do an interview and every time I do a podcast, Trump is a symptom. He's Mm -hmm. not the disease. And a healthy country that functioned properly would never have elected Donald Trump. It took decades Mm -hmm. worth of malfeasance to Mm -hmm. get to Donald Trump. Just because Joe Biden gets elected president does not mean that everything gets better. It means it's easier to ignore the problems. Mm. Right. Because it's not glaring and blatant. Yes. So we have to remember. And, and unfortunately, this is their thing. I actually I think Barack Obama was a really great president with some problems here and there. We can mm-hmm. talk about those another time. <laughs> but it was very easy with a president like Barack Obama mm-hmm. to say, oh, the president's got this. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Well, we saw and, that in and, the midterms. People didn't vote. Exactly. And it's like, oh, well, politics is taken care of now. It's almost like trying to take a nap in a car. If you know there's a driver who's competent, you're right, not worried. Right, about, right, right. Yeah. Right. But it's hard to take a nap in a car with an erratic driver. So we have to remember that this wow. this American project is endangered and we have to we have to continue fighting to change it, yeah. even if Biden gets in. So I think what we might see, and again, this is a best case scenario. It might be a situation where, as younger people in particular, Mm -hmm. liberals or progressives, whatever you want to call them, um, they're trying to move the Democratic Party left. Yes, they are. And we could see a shifting of the Overton window where Biden gets in. And and I would say that Biden is either either a centrist or at times Mm center-right. We could possibly see that the electorate starts dividing based on center, center center-right and Mm center-left or left. Yeah, And so that would be a best-case scenario if we start arguing about how to change the system post-Trump and we just go ahead and amputate this terrible Trumpist disease that was exposed as being not just dangerous but fascistic. Mm -hmm. That is a best-case scenario, but uh, I I think those are conversations that need to continue regardless of who's president. Yeah, and I mean, one thing I want to stress is – you know, when, and I've said this again so many times, when people are comfortable, they have a tendency not to act. So yep. when Barack Obama was president, it's just like you said, oh, he's got this, we're covered. But, you know, without thinking in terms of, oh, wait a minute, it's the Senate, it's the, um, it's the House, and we need them. And, and, and I go back to this argument that when I was young and, and, and going to school, public school in Southern California, I didn't learn civics. We weren't taught government. There was just no government classes. Briefly, I, w- I, w- I was raised in Maryland and I moved to California when I was nine. I came back to live in Maryland for about half a year during my sixth grade, which I could definitely at that point see how superior East Coast public schools were to West Coast public schools. I know that there, like, I did have a class in sixth grade in, on the East Coast, which I am now. Um, it was a social studies class, and we did talk about government. I never had a social studies class in California. I just never had one. We had history class, but uh, we did not have social studies. And so I think, you know, I'm the kind of person, and I'm not going to say everybody's like this, but I wasn't the best student, and it wasn't because I wasn't bright. It was just because I didn't care. Um, my, my teachers didn't care enough to scare me when I had a teacher that scared me or, or, or I respected, or if I had a class that I really enjoyed, like one of my favorite classes was psychology 
and I just thought it was so much fun, and I, I loved that class, so I did well in it. But, um, you know, math and science and um, a couple of other, di- they they were d- more difficult for me because I remember, this is a long story, but they taught the new math and the new math. My mom n- is really good at math, and I would bring new math home, and she's like, <laughs> wait a minute, but the answer is 15, and you just get to it by this simple you know, thing. And, and I, and I'm like, no, no, you have to do all these extra steps. And my mom's like, no wonder you fucking hate math. Because it's like, <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm the kind of person, again, I'm not speaking for everybody, but if I would have learned very early on a about, um, women getting the right to vote, fighting for it and getting it. And if, and understood that white women were the ones leading and still keeping black women out. Yep. Um, if I would have understood those things, if I would have understood that the president nominates a Supreme Court justice and the Senate votes them in and understood what that importance was, I believe I would have been politically engaged much younger. But it was just something that, you know, it's, it's already hard to get young people to pay attention in the first place because you know you've got all these things you've, you're focusing on school you're interested in you know dating and sex and love and all of that and you know going out to parties and mingling and social events and you know whatever issues you're going on you know that are going on with home so you've got this full life and then politics is something that you don't even feel like y- you understand if you're taught civics in school and if you learn about how government works you're going to be more hopefully engaged and uh, maybe not everybody, but I think a lot more people. And that's part of the problem is that uh, a lot of people just see government as something separate. And you, like you were saying, it's a, it's a spectacle that we're all just watching and we're not necessarily a part of. And if we learned um, at an early age, but then this goes back to Republicans defunding education and uh, Fox News. And, you know, you were saying decades and decades of all these different things coming together to create the moment we're in now. Um, but I think I think one of the things I mean, if 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 Biden get it, I totally agree with you that it, it makes it easier to ignore. So that's what I want to stress is we sh- we cannot allow um, a Biden victory to make us feel. I mean, let's take a deep sigh. You know, we can we can have a like relief breath and go. Ah you know, take a couple days to just say, thank you, God. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, and allow yourself to enjoy that. But it, it's not over because Fox News is still going to be on. And Rush Limbaugh's and, and Alex Jones's and all these people are still going to have their toxic radio programs. And we're still going to have the issue that schools aren't necessarily teaching us what we need to know specifically about government. All those problems are are still going to be there. And the only, and, and I feel like too, and this is a whole nother subject, so I won't get into it, but I mean, you're saying like these new progressives are coming in and pushing the party left. And I, I really like to see that. What I don't like to see is the, the internal fight. I feel like we're, we really are all are on the same page. Um, as far as Democrats, like we, we all want the same things. I think we even want the same things as conservatives. It's just the argument about how to get it. Um, but I see this 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 divisive, uh, you know, it's kind of like this toxic divide within the Democratic Party of with progressives and with just I don't know what you would call them. I mean, I feel like I'm a progressive, 
but well, um, I would, I, w- I would, I would say, and this is one of those things I think to keep in mind, particularly about the Democratic Party. And there, there's a difference between how the Republican Party has um, evolved and how the Democratic Party has evolved. The Democratic Party, you can set your watch to this, which is there's always a generational fight. Mm-hmm. There's always a moment of <laughs> yeah. Democratic reckoning, and what ends up <laughs> happening in every election cycle, and unfortunately, Democrats forget this, is there's always a left insurgency. Mm-hmm. And there is an institutional uh, uh, group. And, you know, whether or not you want to look at it this time is uh, Bernie versus Biden. Mm-hmm. Last time with Bernie versus Hillary. Mm-hmm. However you want to chalk that up is fine. But one of the things that, that we need to remember, and again, this goes back to the American myth, right? This idea that America is always getting better and that the arc of the universe bends towards justice. We have to remember that not everything is left and right the way that we think that it is. The Democratic Party has moved across the Overton window for the longest time. And actually in the 1990s, one of the reasons we're in the situation we are now is because the Democratic Party looked at somebody like Ronald Reagan Mm -hmm. and they said, well, Reagan is one. We'll never beat him. Mm -hmm. We have to become more like Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. And they they basically started calling themselves Republicans with a human face, Hmm. which is what Bill Clinton and uh, people like Joe Biden were. And they, they, they started to present themselves as sort of like Republicans with a conscience, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So this is one of the reasons why somebody like Joe Biden is one of the architects of like the modern incarceration state or mm-hmm. the modern police state. Well, these are things that like we can look at now and say, wow, we were wrong back mm-hmm. then, mm-hmm. right? We can evolve. We can start to move sort of uh, forward. I mean, if you even look, and this is weird to think about now, Barack Obama did not come out for gay marriage for a long time. Right, yeah. And Joe Biden actually drugged him to that position. Interesting. So so we have to remember that what we think about as liberal or progressive right now Mm -hmm. and where that Overton window Mm -hmm. has Mm -hmm. moved Mm -hmm. is much further left than the Democratic Party has been for a while. Yeah. And so we're going to see another one of those generational fights is what's right. going to happen. Yeah, it's just going to be a fight, I guess. It's just going to be a it's, fight. <laughs> it's going to be a fight. But the thing is, we have to remember. And, and again, this is the thing. When you know history, when you know precedent, you start to understand it. Right. Yeah. Because if you don't know this stuff, it just feels like an earthquake. Like what in the hell is right. going on yeah. right now? Why are we all fighting? This is really, really toxic. And when you start actually looking at the past, you're like, oh, my God, it's it's like the trees dropping their leaves. Mm. Right. And you're like, oh, I think I think when spring comes around, those trees are going to have leaves again. Mm-hmm. But we can't we cannot rest on laurels and suddenly no. believe right. that things are just going to get better because they're always going to get better. It takes that sort of ideological battle and struggle and we can get there. That's the hope on this whole thing is that we can get past these squabbles that have led us down this disastrous road, but we have to recognize that we're on that road and we have to recognize how we got here. Yeah. And I would, I would like for Democrats to also recognize, I just took a drink, so I'm coughing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I would like, you know, I mean, as somebody who is progress, I, you know, I, I like to call myself the pragmatic progressive, right? Because I, I recognize that um, politics is not something that's just simple and easy. It's not black and white. And I recognize that in order to get things done, it is a game. You have, it's like everything is a game, no matter, you know, I used to be a salesperson and that was a game. You had to figure out your place wherever it was with the customer, with the company, with whatever it was, and you had to figure out the best way to get that job done. And so I, you know, I look at somebody like AOC and she's a perfect example because, um, you know, when she was first elected, I, I mean, I always appreciated her 
ability to handle uh, the Republicans. She was young, or she is young, and she understands social media, and she takes no shit. And as somebody who, like I said, I supported Bernie Sanders, I, I still support and I will always support Bernie Sanders' vision. I, I don't necessarily believe he was the best person to bring about that vision, but I still support that vision and, and I support people who support that. And so she's clearly one. And so with all of the ugliness that happened in the 2016 election, of course, there was a lot of, even within the Democratic Party, there was a lot of... Um, you know, there were many people who just don't, there's the squad and there are people who just don't like the squad and they're against the squad. And I feel like I look at AOC and I, and I, and I thought to myself, well, you know, and as progressive as I am, I, I, I'm concerned about disruption in our own party to where it hurts us. I'm not at all upset with anybody who wants to challenge the status quo. I'm not at all upset with younger generations wanting to push us, um, to the left. I think that's natural. And I think that, that, you know, the, the party does move to the left. It did move to the left in 2016. Our country maybe didn't, but the party did. And, um, maybe not as far as some people would have liked to seen it go, but I wanted to reserve my opinion of her, not because I immediately distrusted her for any reason, but I just, I'm like, okay, I want to see with this younger generation, how they're going to behave. And what I see from AOC is she's so smart and she, and I've, I've, I'm at this, I'm at the point now where I feel like I completely trust her and I feel like, um, she does stand up for women just with that whole fucking bitch incident with that Yoho guy. I, I, <laughs> I, I really loved the way she, I mean, it was not just that cause there's also the way she handles, handles herself when she, uh, you know, whenever she's doing in investigations or, or whatever the house, the, the house committee things that she questions people and she questioned what's his name? Um, Cohen. And, uh, I mean, she, she's always impressive to me and, and the thing that bothers me is that like, for instance, she signs on to the grant, uh, green new deal. And I feel like, okay, well, we just got this report from, I don't remember where, but the ocean is significantly warmer, 7.2 degrees warmer than it normally is. Um, and the climate is such an important big deal. And what I'm seeing, at least on social media, is these these Democrats that are so not wanting to budge on, I hate the squad. I hate AOC. I hate the squad. I hate, a, you know, it's like over and over again, that's what they've told themselves and it's become a belief when, you know, and then they, they criticize her or anybody for wanting something like the Green New Deal or wanting something like Medicare for All. And although I understand we're not going to get the Green New Deal in five seconds and we're not going to get Medicare for All in five seconds, it's something that we have to work towards so that it's more fair. But what winds up happening is this divide is making these, these and I guess you're right, it's like a generational thing, these Democrats insist that it'll never happen. And I feel like, why are we doing this to ourselves? Why are we insisting that we're never going to have things that we need, like clean air? Why? Why do we do this? And it's not to say that you have to be an AOC fan and that you have to love her. It's not about that. It's about recognizing that we do have to move forward on these issues. Because even though you, the person who's listening, might have great health care right now with the ACA, there's a whole bunch of other people out there who don't have it for whatever. They might be living in a red state and their governor has not taken the, the money for ACA. So they're just shit out of luck. There, you know, it's, it's, it's not fair across the board. So the whole idea is let's make this fair across the board. And, and, and it's just so frustrating to me to see Democrats 
uh, treating the one the, the the whether it's younger or older because we do have older people who are very progressive. I mean, I look at Sherrod Brown and, and people like that who definitely want to make these changes. Bernie, you know, he's almost 80 years old. And it's and, and Elizabeth Warren. I, these changes could can absolutely be made in a way that is satisfying to the entire party and in the end will bring us something positive. But I see that we're fighting ourselves and that just stresses me out. It stresses me out so much because I feel like we could get so much farther. But we get caught up in these crazy, angry debates that are actually being um, weaponized through this, you know, through Russia, you know, attacking our social media and taking sides with Black Lives Matter, taking sides with AOC. To, you know, they, they play both sides and they make us fight. And I feel like we fall into that and we have knee-jerk reactions and we are not looking at the bigger picture about, hey, wouldn't it be great if we really could have... Medicare for all. Wouldn't it be great if we could improve our environment and clean our air and water? It seems like yeah, that gets and, lost. And, and, and by the way, I think so much of this has to do with the rhetorical battleground that the Republican Party has not just created, but is perpetuated for the past few decades. They, they basically told us, hey, we only have so much of a pie to share, mm -hmm. right? All of this pie is going to the military industrial complex. All of this pie is going for these operations that, oh, by the way, if you were to take a cent away from this, mm -hmm. our towns would you know, right. fall into disrepair and crime. Um, if we took our eye off the ball, another 9-11 could happen, even though the military industrial complex didn't stop the first 9-11. Yeah. Um, you know, but so we're basically told we now have to compete for this limited pie, which is unfortunately mm -hmm. the, the nature of austerity. When yeah. you do not have enough money to go around, even though we're the richest nation and most powerful nation in the world, when you don't have enough resources to go around because so much of it is being dominated by things like national security, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you start fighting about the the scraps that you can right. have yeah, yeah, yeah. we need to change our concept because we have uh, we have really ceded so much rhetorical battleground and space to the republican party to define the arguments we can chew gum and walk at the same time <laughs> yeah. we can both be safe while also improving and you know you look at economic inequality you look at stagnation you look at all this stuff and you see that america has stopped progressing it's just it's hit pause. Mm -hmm. Our infrastructure is crumbling. It needs desperately to be replaced. Climate change is looming as a crisis that, by the way, is going to push us even further into fascism if we're not careful. And we have all these situations that are, are taking place because conservatives and well, they're not even conservatives because Republicans have said we cannot talk about this. We cannot afford it. We have to pay for God knows how many Humvees and bombers and mm -hmm. battleships. So one of the problems is we're having arguments that we don't need to have. If we all agree that this is the direction that we want to go in, let's go in that direction. Yeah. We need to stop talking about what is possible and we need to start making things possible. Yes, we do. And, you know, I could just sit here and talk to you all day. And the thing the thing is, is I feel a little bit comfortable just kind of going all over the map with you <laughs> because you have it all pulled together. <laughs> so you let me just go. Wah! And um, and I appreciate it because I always learn something when I talk to you and I know I have to let you go. Um, but it's just so interesting to talk to you. you have such a good take on this. And you you do make me feel calm, even though I'm worried and I will remain worried. But it's like you, you bring this calming kind of sense to what's happening 
because you're realistic about it. And I appreciate that. And um, I literally could talk to you all day. There are so many things that just bubble up in my mind every time you say something that I'm like, oh, and this and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, but I, I do appreciate that. I, I, I do feel like I'm a little bit all over the map today, but that's just because I, I trust that you can bring it all back together. So I appreciate it and thank you. And then I just also wanted to um, mention, why don't you tell everybody about your book? Because I know that's your pinned tweet. So I'm going to include, I'm going to include your, uh, your handle and everything. And I want people to see it. So tell us a little bit about, I know you talked about it before, but just refresh. Yeah. Us. Uh, so, and, and, and thank you. You're, you're the absolute best. Um, <laughs> so American rule, how nation conquered the world and failed its people, uh, comes out in September okay. and it is my reckoning with the American mythology. Um, I, I went back through American history because Trump obviously made it clear that something wasn't working yeah. in America. So I want to go back to the very beginning and look at America like, and actually see the real history of America. Like, Look at what the experts have had to say, not mm -hmm. conventional wisdom and you know, conventional narratives. And what I found was that uh, the story of America is completely different from what I thought it was. Mm -hmm. um, and that it is, the, the story that most of us have been taught about how America got to where we are now is a weapon, a piece of propaganda. And uh, it's, it's been sold to us, a false bill of goods in order to control us. And it's unfortunately led to the, the precipice of fascism. So that, that, that is a reckoning with American history. It's a retelling of the actual history of America. And that comes out in September. Wow, that's I'm definitely going to read that. Um, and your handle is JY Sexton. So I'm going to include that in the um, description of, of the show. So that'll be there. I'll also put your uh, your link to you, the Penguin Random House so people can read about it. And congratulate. Is, that, is this your first book? I don't think it is, is it? No, I want to say this is seven or eight. Wow. That's really impressive. You know, I just want to just take a second to say, I mean, I'm an author, but I, I'm a self-published author. And, you know, my mom and I had put together a story, a collection of stories about people losing their virginity. And that, that was our first book called The Virgin Diaries. And we, we, we sent it out to agents, you know, the whole process of, I don't know how you got your book deal, but we were like searching, you know, we were sending it out to agents and nobody understood what we were doing. And, and all I wanted to do was collect stories. In my mind, it was like, I just felt like when I was a kid, I was curious about sex. I didn't want to have it, but it was everywhere. And I had questions. And it's like, I, I asked my mom some questions, but you feel funny asking your parents questions about sex. And your friends aren't always going to be truthful because they don't always have all the accurate information. So I just wanted it to be people telling everybody this is what it was like for me. It, and, and it really wasn't focused on the physical. It was more on the emotional end of it, like the beginning, middle, and the end of the whole process of it. And so I mean, everybody, the, a mother and daughter putting out a book, um, you know, about first time sex. It was like no one knew what the hell to do with it. So we just decided to um, to self-publish. And then moving forward, because we had one book out, we're like, why spend the time trying to get a publisher when it's so difficult? We're just going to do it ourselves. So to see that you are, you know, you've got Penguin and Random House, that's pretty impressive and and hats off to you for that. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. And, you know, it's like one of those things where I, you know, it, it's the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. But I, yeah. I, again, going back to what we were talking about, it feels like when you start actually figuring out what has actually happened, 
it makes things so much clearer. Yeah. Right. And and when you're fighting things like fascism, fascism hides behind not just lies, but conspiracy theories and myths. Yeah. And the only way that you can actually deconstruct them is if you know the actual truth. And when mm-hmm. you know the truth, you can just destroy these myths and these lies. Yeah. But uh, it, it does help to know wh- how we got here. And, and that's really the only antidote to, to what's happening, what's taking place right now. Awesome. Well, definitely I'm going to be reading it and everybody should check it out. Like, I said it's your pinned tweet so you can is pre-ordering happening right now yeah that's right it comes out on september 15th yay all right well thank you so much for being on the show i love having you on you're so smart and i just appreciate your point of view so much uh you're the best thank you so much all right well you take care take care oh i love talking to him even though he kind of scares me (laughs) but but he's right and and i agree that we all have to uh you know get our shit together we have to get pissed and we have to we have to change things. And I also agree what he said about Joe Biden. And I never really thought about it that way. But it's true because when he wins and I'm going to go with when I'm not saying to get happy, but I'm just going to I'm not going to put it out there, even though I do kind of on the show. But I mean, you know what I mean? It's like I just want to kind of think in terms of let's not focus on the negative. It doesn't mean it's not there, but let's kind of so many of us focus on Trump's all the fucking time. So I'd like to move ahead with the idea that we're going to have a Biden administration, but that does mean that it will be easier to kind of look the other way for things that we were looking the other way before he came into office. And look, it's just the ugly truth. It's the ugly truth. And it goes down to this. When you're walking down the street and there's a homeless person that asks you for money and you kind of look the other way, we've all done it. I mean, sometimes I've done it because I don't have any money to give them. Um, Sometimes you do it because it just makes you feel uncomfortable because you're with a group of people. I mean, in some cases, we've all stopped and given them food or money. You know, somebody asked on Twitter today, have you ever helped out a homeless person? And I said, yes, but it's never enough. I mean, I remember one time I was on my way to the grocery store and I saw a mom and her daughter with a sign that they didn't have any food. And so I went in and I bought her some food you know, I filled up two grocery bags of, of things that I thought could last for a while and some immediate things they could eat at that moment. And yeah, yeah, that sounds really nice of me. But it was nice. And it's like every once in a while, Bob will come home and he'll tell me that he gave money to, to a homeless person who has a dog or whatever it is that, you know, Bob does this a lot. He gives money to homeless people a lot. And I mean, he'll give them gift cards that he gets for Christmas. And but it's like, there's only so much you can do. There's so much a bigger problem. You can't take in all the homeless people. Sometimes it's just easier when you're walking down the street to ignore it. Because you realize that the problem is so big and giving someone a sandwich is only a temporary solution that's not going to help. And so I think you can look at this, this coming administration, the Biden administration, where It'll be, it will be easier to look away from things, but I, I really urge everybody not to do that. And, and going back to what I said, you know, I, I, I do consider myself a progressive person, but I, but I see myself as practical and I understand we're not going to get to all those things immediately, but, it, but we have to stay open to them. And please, you know, if you're listening to this and you've never heard me before, or if you feel stubborn in any way, just kind of relax a little bit and open your mind to the idea that some of these progressives and I'm not defending all of them because I think there's a fringe left that are are nihilistic and who are going to hurt us more than help us and and they upset me and they frustrate me but I also look at a lot of progressives and and you know I look at somebody like Randy Bryce he was on the show he wants to make this country better 
legitimately. He's not a lunatic. He's not burning it all down. He understands what's at stake. I, I just want the Democrats who feel, I don't know what the word is because nobody's comfortable right now, but the Democrats who were happy with the way it was before to just say, you know what, we've got to open our eyes. I mean, even women are not in the Constitution. We had Barack, o Barack Obama as president. We had a first black president. And you know what happened during that administration? ERA activists got a petition to put ERA into the Constitution. And I don't remember what it was. It was the three-state strategy was still going on where we still had three straight, I can't talk, three states that had not yet ratified. I, I, I got to stop talking in a minute. We basically just got a nice little pat on the shoulder. Nobody said anything and nobody did anything. Does that make me hate Barack Obama? Of course not. But nothing was done. Nobody talked about it. Nobody cared. And so... I mean, we have to understand what all this means, that just because we have a Democratic-run government for a while doesn't mean everything can just, you know, we can just go back to ignoring everything or not paying as much attention. It's always a work in progress, and we always have to stay motivated. We always have to be engaged, and we have to understand what's at stake because, as Jared said, when we show up and we participate and we engage, we actually have power. And, and again, it goes back to asking, it's not necessarily older Democrats, because there are plenty of younger Democrats that are feeling like they don't like this new progressive movement. I do like progressive politics. I just don't like the bullying kind of politics where you have certain younger progressives screaming that they're in government saying that they're not going to vote for Joe Biden. I don't see where that helps anything at all. It's not that I think Joe Biden is our big savior. But uh, he kind of he kind of will be for, uh, uh, you know, temporarily. But I mean, I, I just I don't think that that's professional or appropriate. But I, I think that it's important to have young people come in or new energy come in, whether they're young or not, just new, fresh ideas come in and push. We need to push. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it. The only time there's trouble is when it when it gives Republicans a win. But if we can work together and accept that, hey, yeah, we do need to clean up the earth because Mother Nature is pissed and the ocean is warming. And this is going to mean devastation in so many different ways. Hurricane seasons, fire seasons, you know, the, the, the water coming up and houses just being floating off into the ocean and people being homeless. This is all shit that's going to happen. I'm not, I'm not being an alarmist. <laughs> Hello, Al Gore was telling us this years ago. I think it's just really important that we stay engaged and not take anything for granted. Let's take our nap, our, oh, we can finally get a good night's sleep, have a week off, take a month off, whatever it is, and then get right back into it. And don't forget the importance of it because this is our country and this is our home. And we have to fight for it all the time. And I guess I shouldn't say fight, uh, but, w but we have to work to make it a better place all the time. I mean, I would much rather have, and let me just tell you this, I'm going to end on this. My brother is a moderate. He's a moderate Democrat. I think he could as easily be a moderate Republican, but not the crazy current version of Republican, like old school Republican. But... Um, for social issues, he's a Democrat. He's definitely very, you know, open. He does. He's he's not racist. He doesn't care if you're gay. He's not a misogynist. But he's probably a little bit more. He's been in the military, so I think he's a little bit more conservative when it comes to spending and defense and all of that. But I asked him because he had been stationed in Italy, 
and he met his wife who was living in London and they had a child while she was still living over there. And I asked him, because of course they all live here now, which system do you think is better? Which healthcare system do you think is better? England or America? And I mean, without even pausing, he said, oh, England for sure. England's better. I mean, he prefers living in America and he can have a better quality of life considering Donald Trump doesn't win. But I mean, he can have a better quality of life over here than he could have in England. But as far as healthcare, it was a no brainer. And the guy is a conservative. I mean, he's a conservative Democrat. He's just very moderate. And he's not necessarily a political junkie. Um, He doesn't know or understand politics the way I do just because he's just busy and he's got a life and he, you know, he's, he's got a daughter, he's got a young daughter and he's just trying to make, you know, he's going to school and he's going, he works a full-time job. So he's not, he's not, doesn't have his head in Twitter all day long or reading Axios or Politico or watching MSNBC. And he said, it's better in England. Healthcare is better and he would much rather see it here. So I'm just going to leave it on that for anybody who is who might think that uh, no, Medicare for all is not the way to go. I think it is the way to go and we can afford it and we can do it. It's just going to take some time because it's a big country and there's a lot of us here and we can't just snap our fingers and get rid of all the insurance companies overnight and then boom, have this perfect system. It's going to take some time, but I'm willing to wait and I feel like everybody should be willing to do what we need to do to get to that point. And, and don't forget when, when the ACA was implemented, there were glitches and there was, you know, it wasn't perfect. It was difficult, but we got through it. Same thing's going to happen with implementing Medicare for all. It's, there's going to be glitches, there's going to be problems, but we can get through it. So there's my, there's my spiel. Oy vey. All right, that's it for today. Next week, I'm going to be doing a patrons-only show. I think it's going to be with Stephanie. I'm not sure. Um, and you can always give me your feedback on on what you want from those patrons-only shows because I'm totally willing to keep my mind open to po- show possibilities, uh, guest possibilities. I, I will say that those shows are, obviously, there's a, a much smaller audience for those shows. So I don't necessarily want to give up all the good stuff on those shows, like good guests and exciting guests. But if you have ideas for, you know, topics or subjects or certain guests that you think might be good, I am open. I'm not going to make any promises, but I am open. So there's that. All right. Well, that's it. Not going to do one this week, but we will do one next week. And I will see you next week, everyone. Bye-bye.